Hello and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Calliopeia Magdalu. Today our guest is Zoe Griffith, a doctoral candidate in the Department of History at Brown University. Zoe, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. This is something that I would consider a really important podcast for the field of Ottoman history because we're going to be dealing with the issue of political economy, which it seems like in recent years has almost fallen off the map for a lot of historians. I know I have a number of friends working on environmental history. This does incorporate approaches of political economy, and we won't say that nobody's working on it, but things have gone sort of in other directions, cultural history, gender is still kind of there, but political economy is really decreased in recent years. So we have Zoe here, who's a political economist, we could say, of Ottoman Egypt. And today we're going to be talking about the political economy of Lebanon, or Ottoman Lebanon, or Bilad Hashem. And the window we're going to use to access political economy is a really great one, in my opinion, because it gets you down to the one of the lowest levels of society, I guess, which is the family. I'll, I'll give a quotation from Bashar Dumani. He says, the topic of family history is a, an ideal lens through which to, quote, analyze the kinship gender property matrix as a complex whole that can only be disaggregated at our peril. So, Zoe, I, I pulled that quotation from your paper. Why don't you explain why you think that, what you think that says about uh, family history as a framework for approaching political economy? No, I think that that's a really important question, Chris, and it's a, it's a way for us to reconceptualize or maybe... Uh, reintroduce subjects that uh, social historians left off when Ottoman history sort of veered away from social history um, and economic history uh, in the sort of late 90s or 2000s. Um, and it's a great way to revisit the question of, of social history for Ottoman historians because it also uh, allows us to integrate the question of, um, of politics, obviously, and of how uh, the family is a basic unit of social organization ties into questions of taxation, administration, um, political power, hierarchy, lots of questions that um, I would say social historians, at least of the Arab, prov uh, the Arab provinces um, working in the 80s and 90s, largely were uh, not in a position to address at that time due to you know, difficult, uh, difficult access to the Ottoman archives or, uh, you know, sort of nationalist historiographical traditions. So I think that, um, the rise of family history is a really exciting, uh, development. It's going to, as you say, kind of readdress questions of gender. It's going to readdress questions of law, legal history, which is a big, um, a big development in Ottoman studies at the moment as well. Um, and then sort of tie these actors who haven't necessarily been uh, integrated very well into Ottoman studies back into a kind of imperial uh, picture that includes the state as well. So another thing you mentioned was this uh, problematic state-society binary. How, how is family a way of overcoming this, uh, the issue of this false dichotomy? Uh, well, I think in the context of Ottoman history in particular, uh, we have a very sort of, we have an, an enduring notion of this kind of askariyuraya, if not kind of reality, then at least the discourse, which was 
it was. I mean, it was a prominent sort of political discourse within uh, Ottoman political thought. Um, but when you sort when you begin to look at the way that societies were organized on the ground, um, it becomes really clear that this notion of a sort of of platonic spheres of of society and and state uh, really don't bear out. And I think that this is particularly important for, for us as Ottoman historians because the, the notion of the breakdown between the Oscar Uriah binary is one of the major kind of cornerstones of the decline narrative that we've all been writing against for the last like two generations. Um, but we haven't done much toward rebuilding an understanding of, you know, we need to pay attention to these discourses, but how do we kind of, how do we deal with how muddy it gets when we look at actual, uh, actual relationships between, between males that we would consider members of the Oscari establishment and their family members and their wives, their children, their parents, their siblings who, uh, you know, through looking particularly at local, locally produced court records, uh, we can see are are really vital actors for these men's um, economic activities, for their inheritance, for their maybe for their political livelihood, either for linking Oscaris who are stationed in the provinces back to the imperial center, or for um, helping Oscaris arriving from outside to sort of root themselves in a local context. Maybe actually this would be a good point to introduce the case study and talk about the specific family of Mehmet Aga and in, in Tripoli? In the context of, uh, of Tripoli, and for this project I was looking at um, a set of, of sigils from the Tripoli uh, Sharia court, specifically the first four, which are not continuous, but they span roughly the period from like 1665 to 1715. Um, well, the, the court records themselves obviously speak to kind of uh, the need of this society to transact a great deal of uh, of property in mulberry trees specifically. So mulberry trees are really, uh, in this period of um, Tripoli's economic history, the sort of crux of legal activity, of uh, kind of propertied family dynamics and so on. Um, and one of the major players in this period is a, is a Kapikul, um, so an imperial janissary stationed in uh, stationed in the citadel of Tripoli by the name of Kechajizadi uh, Mehmed Aga, and um, through the devolution of his enormous enormous estate of property, which includes almost ten thousand mulberry trees, water buffaloes, barns, vineyards, um, I don't know, gardens of of unnamed varieties. Um, we begin to kind of unpack how a very, very imperial figure and a major imperial figure um, kind of maintained, main, you know, had a foot in each camp. He had a foot in Istanbul, he had a foot in Tripoli. These two aspects of his uh, economic life and political activities um, are maintained sort of throughout coming generations of his family. So the the activities of this imperial janissary resonate throughout the Tripoli sigils for the next 50 years at least. And I know probably some of our listeners are wondering if this is the Kechijizade family, the family of Fuad Pasha, 
the very, uh, you know, famous governor from the mid-19th century, the one who was responsible for putting down the quote-unquote rebellions or the civil unrest in, in Syria and Lebanon. That's certainly a question that I'm asking myself. Uh, it seems like it's possible. I hope some of our listeners can probably get back to us with uh, the answer to that question. But and so um, talking about the estate of Kachijizade in Tripoli, before we do that, you mentioned the issue of mulberries. Mm-hmm. And the title of our podcast is Mulberry Fields Forever. Uh, a very cute title, but one that I think expresses the point you're trying to make here about the relationship between property, land, and, and agriculture, and uh, inheritance, which is in turn tied to sort of the building of political dynasties. Could you explain sort of basically what mulberry trees are for and why this specificity of mulberry trees is relevant for political economy in your study yes absolutely i mean actually as i was writing uh as i was looking into the mulberry question and as i began to sort of flesh out the project whenever i would explain it to people i realized that i'd become my own academic worst nightmare that i was sort of writing a paper about mulberry trees in the 17th century this was like some kind of it couldn't get more esoteric than this but uh you know, I'm comforted by the fact that, I mean, I think any Ottoman historian will tell you that um, that mulberry trees and w- in terms of their linkage, their fundamental uh, link to the silk economy. Because silkworms eat mulberry leaves. Exclusively, right. So, as, you know, koalas and, ec- and eucalyptus trees, it's the same with... <laughs> <laughs> Yes, the the thriving <laughs> koala pelt industry is also, <laughs> you know, very. Sorry. Uh, yeah. No. Exactly. So silkworms uh, eat exclusively um, mulberry leaves, and specifically the leaves of mature mulberry trees. So the trees have to have been uh, maturing for at least I think seven to ten years before they're suitable for the worms to eat the leaves and then produce uh, cocoons. Um, and it creates a really fascinating division of labor in a place like 17th century Tripoli, um, where at that time, Tripoli had been recently, uh, historians say, sort of reconquered by the Ottomans. So mm-hmm. the Ottomans conquered, uh, you know, conquered Bilad Hashem in the early 16th century, but they left Mount Lebanon and its surrounding areas under the control, under the administration of the sort of family who was in charge at the time already, the Saifas, uh, so Turkoman sort of dynasty, who were then uh, conquered by the Ma'an dynasty. Um, and the Ottomans sort of engaged in this reconquest as part of a recentralization effort in that area in 1635. And at this time, Tripoli is, it's a port, but in the 17th century, it wasn't a particularly important it wasn't particularly important as a port for um, for sea trade. And the economy of the city, which is sort of unique in having a really uh, lush and vibrant, they call the green belt surrounding mm-hmm. um, the city of Tripoli, surrounding the, the walls of the city, um, which was naturally irrigated by, a, you know, a set of canals, naturally occurring canals. Um, and this allowed for... Uh, a very intensive sort of horticultural regime to emerge. And in this period, it was specifically uh, uh, mulberry trees that were, um, that were, that constituted the major, um, the major economic engagement. And what's interesting about this is that in the court records, if you look at the sigils, 
what you're seeing is sort of the level of, of property ownership specifically. You don't see the level of, of production. I mean, silk production is not something that really emerges very clearly in the court records themselves because the peasants responsible for uh, growing the worms, cultivating, you know, um, culling the cocoons, they didn't have the means to use the court really for their for their needs. So insofar, so other than uh, what they call salam contracts or advance payment contracts, you don't really see the level of production. Yeah, I was going to say I find um, fascinating the spatial mm. distribution of the labor involved in silk production. What you were, what you mentioned that landowners are involved in the silk production through the mulberry trees and then the peasants are in the mountains or in the interior. We don't see them in the court and they are manufacturing actually. Um, I thought that differentiation is amazing. And I, I also found very interesting uh, the property status of trees and actually their capacity to be inherited in very flexible ways. Could you add something on that? Right, so this is really central to the question of, of what effect does a, a kind of local economy of mulberry tree ownership, which is really what we have in the sigils. It's not necessarily a record of the silk economy. We're not seeing transactions in silk. We're not seeing, um, you know, disputes over silkworms. What we're seeing is, um, is a regime of propertied, of a propertied class that is heavily, heavily invested in trees themselves. And and why this is interesting in the context of Ottoman history, I think, is that um, Ottoman historians have spent a great deal of time, uh, as they should, I mean, because this was sort of at the at the core of, of an agricultural um, empire, but uh, unpacking the implications of subsistence agriculture, of miri land, of... Um, who has the rights, who has what kinds of rights and access to agricultural land in the Ottoman Empire. And uh, Martha Mundi, Huri Islamolu, um, and others have written about a sort of layered, uh, layered regime, a layered legal regime by which uh, peasants have usufruct, la uh, usufruct rights uh, to land that is owned by the state and the rights to taxation are held by the timar holder, by the... Um, Multism, what have you. Uh, in the case of horticultural property, you have a, a very different um, kind of legal status of uh, of property by which the trees themselves, not the land, but the trees are uh, heritable property or alienable. Yeah. And so the the owner who, you know, for all intents and purposes, I think from the court records that we're looking at is sort of the owner of, of this plot of land, but um, has the ability to to sell, to buy, to rent, and to uh, inherit a very, very valuable piece of, of property to whomever he wants. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this has real implications for political economy in the broadest sense. Like, uh, I've read that, for example, land where grain was grown would have a higher uh, stratification of wealth, for example, because there would be a lot of landless peasants somehow involved in uh, growing and harving the, harvesting this grain, whereas places with olives, places with trees, as you say, what you would see a more even distribution 
I, I don't want to use terms of like class that might not be appropriate here, but you see a more even even distribution of wealth. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, well, certainly in terms of um, in terms of horticultural land, as in the case of urban property, um, people can be invested in greater or larger. I mean, greater or smaller uh, shares in a in any given property. For instance, I mean a a large uh, orchard of mulberry trees could be subdivided. I mean, every piece of property is subdivided into 24 kirats. So uh, an orchard, for instance, you know, you can hold one kirat, you can hold half a kirat. I mean, I think that there are greater possibilities in terms of um, how you can, I mean, you can make a livelihood off of a much smaller investment in a piece of land like that, but I don't really know. And I guess that's why our podcast is called Mulberry Fields Forever, because... By passing them on to your ki- uh, your uh, children and grandchildren can sort of create a dynasty. Well, that seems to be the case, at least in 17th century Tripoli, where you see just an overwhelming occurrence of um, of both Oscari and Riaia. I mean, using the terms normatively as they appear in the documents. Um, I mean, everyone is inheriting these trees um, and the wealth, in, you know, held within them onto their onto their children, onto their siblings, and onto their slaves. I mean, onto manumitted slaves. It's very interesting. I really think that this, in the context of um, the sort of newly reconquered uh, space of Mount Lebanon, newly reconquered by the Ottomans, the Ottomans have sent you know, these garrisons of, of imperial janissaries who have no kind of, um, no local connection of their own, what we see is them buying up uh, enormous numbers of mulberry trees as the sort of economic foundation for uh, for life in the area, and then oftentimes uh, marrying into local society or um, kind of putting down roots with their own family based back in Istanbul. I mean, so you see both phenomenons, but with mulberry trees, local, you know, rooted trees uh, at the center of the strategy. So Chajiza de Mehmetar had three wives and four surviving children out of six. How does um, their gender identity, their class identity and their relation to Mehmetar, though theirs and other people's, as far as I understand, uh, creates cases of conflict and alliance um, in the process of inheriting his large property. Uh, the reason he makes such a compelling case study, I think, is that um, I mean, his sort of economic portfolio in Tripoli was so enormous that when it was divided among his heirs, it created all sorts of opportunities for um, for alliances, for conflicts. I mean, the stakes were really high when you're talking about this degree of wealth. Um, and it's very interesting to try to, I mean, the fact that there were so many kind of conflicts and alliances and the fact that he had so much property to be uh, to be fought over meant that we get to tease out really intricate dynamics of his family life, which is not something you get to do that often for individuals in an Ottoman framework. I mean, we very rarely before the 19th century, late 19th century, get to sort of unpack people's uh, family dynamics, I think. Or at least at the imperial level, maybe it's easier at the at the local level, but it's something that social historians try to do sort of through court records. Um, 
And in this context, I mean, you see, for instance, I think the most interesting aspect of his family dynamic is that there, there emerge these two poles, I would say, um, after his death. One pole being uh, his wife, Aisha Hatun, who was uh, herself the daughter of an imperial janissary who is who lives in Istanbul, who never lived in Tripoli. Um, she is a, an Istanbulite. She's a, a woman of means and power herself. And she's the mother of his two surviving uh, minor sons. Uh, on, the other, on the other side of things, uh, Mehmed Agha left an adult son, uh, Ahmed Agha, who is a resident in Tripoli. And he's the one who appears in the court often to, uh, to represent his own interests, of course, but also often to represent um, the interests of his father's, his deceased father's wife in Istanbul. I mean, he has these alliances, um, business alliances, family alliances. We don't, we can't really know the exact nature of them. But, you know, he appears as the kind of representative of the family writ large, uh, except for when things kind of go sour between him and his father's wife. And then there's you know, moments of tension. But the emergence of these two, uh, of the kind of local pole and the Istanbul pole, I think they speak to to an interesting dynamic that, that comes about out of the fact that, that Mehmed Agha, the patriarch, was able to build a really lasting estate for himself that he must have intended to, to be passed on to his, to his heirs after his death. Is the story of this family kind of similar to some of the other big families we see emerging during this period, such as the Azam family? Is this a similar situation? Um, a family that kind of has links to the imperial center, sets down some roots or puts down one foot in a local area and, sorts, and starts to become a sort of local elite, not necessarily losing ties to the imperial center, but sort of using that position of privilege to become the new local elite. Is that what the kind of process we see going on here? Um, you know, I... I can't really say because because we lose the family to a degree. I mean, they his heirs continue to to show up in the court records at least until the early 18th century, but in a much different capacity. I mean, they they're part of this, you know, this very wealthy, very influential property class. We see um the Mehmed Akha's grandson um, coming to court, for instance, to interact with the, the governor of Tripoli in 1715, sort of uh, supporting a claim of the governor of Tripoli, supporting uh, his wife has property ties um, with the governor of Tripoli as well. But I don't think that we can say that um, that they wielded the kind of power that falls under like a politics of notables sort of framework i mean do they lose do they lose their land do they end up with less land than Mehmed Agha started with or is there well i mean yes they do insofar as um they sell some of it off i think that mm -hmm. when uh Aisha Hatun when um Mehmed Agha's Istanbul based wife when that branch of the family uh that generation kind of um moves on or dies off what have you that land gets sold but the the local branch the Tripoli branch definitely continues and definitely um you know wealth and power build wealth and power i mean they they marry into other sort of um spheres of influence but but the early 18th century 
and uh, much of the 18th century in Tripoli is really a story of, of olives and olive oil, not a story of mulberry trees. Uh, so the silk economy wanes and then it becomes more about olive oil and that kind of dictates the fate of the family to some extent. Uh, that seems to be the case. And then, of course, the, the story of, of silk becomes very much the story of Lebanon again in the 19th, in the 19th century. century. But, yeah, um, yeah this... Uh, 18th century sort of olive oil interlude, which uh, Bashar Dumani, whom we opened with, has has unpacked for for nearby areas. Um, so there's there's these shifts. I mean these these underlying shifts in the political economy that are very much linked into sort of global trends to um, you know the rise of silk production elsewhere in the Mediterranean and in, Euro- and in Europe uh, have a lot to do with the fortunes of of these families on the ground. And I think it's Margaret Merriweather who writes about families in Aleppo. She says that there's very few families that actually, and she has a very broad time period for a study, like 200 years or something. I don't remember. She says very few families are present in the record for that entire time. She calls it social mobility. I don't know. Maybe it's families, you know, because we don't have like last names per se. It's a little bit tricky to track families. One family's name becomes another name, et cetera. But there's a lot of flux going on there. It's not as unchanging as maybe uh, previous scholars had indicated when, without looking so closely at family dynamics. So to get a little bit more about the story of the Kechajizade family and, and their land and their mulberries, let's talk about the legal aspect and let's talk about the courts. Now, one of the things you mentioned in your paper is that some of these records are in Ottoman and some of these records are in Arabic. Do you know why that is? I think that that is a question uh, that is a question that would help us to unlock a lot of the dynamics of the local court system. And the dynamics of the local court system uh, is one of, I think, the most pressing questions that we need to address uh, in Ottoman history going forward for sort of... Um, I mean, you opened the podcast by saying that political economy has, has decreased in recent years. I would say that, I mean, it's certainly it decreased from a, a point of, of great prevalence um, a couple of decades ago, but I think we're seeing the beginnings of a return to questions of political economy, uh, largely connected to um, interest in environmental history and law. So maybe we're re- calling it something different, but, but you can't do environmental history without, uh, you know, attention to, to power and You and can. It's, ter- it's called terrible environmental history. <laughs> okay. Some people write these books like that, but anyway... Okay. Uh, well, we're not here to do terrible no, no, environmental no. history, but um, I think that some really, really great scholarship is being done on um, on how the courts themselves functioned by, I mean, Boac Argane's book is a great example. I think um, Iris Agmon for a later period is doing similar, really important work. Um, and we there's so much more that we need to know about how the courts operated, who was keeping the records, how, what was their training like, um, who was able to access the court based on, um, based on court fees, based on sort of, you know, was the court actually a space in which, um, you know, social justice was something that extended beyond, uh, the, the ranks of the powerful. Like these are questions that are really, really vital. Um, and so one of these questions, the kind of linguistic, uh, the linguistic element is really interesting, I think. And, I mean, my guess, I, certainly one thing you see is that uh, the cases 
in Ottoman Turkish, for instance, are usually cases involving Ayşe Hatun, who's in, who's located in Istanbul. Um, whereas, I mean, the cases in Arabic uh, would be sort of for Ahmed Aga interacting with local individuals, which, I mean, both of these things are going on. You get both dynamics at the same time. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the Ottoman element also fades in the 18th century. It's more prevalent in the 17th century and these speak to questions of you know we have a whole decentralization paradigm in ottoman studies that is kind of problematic but the linguistic element right. in the court records is is maybe a an element of that ebb and flow of ottoman influence how does gender the dimension of gender come into the case study and possibly to the legal aspects as um mainly And how does it work together with class and the imperial background of Aisha Hatun, for example? Right. I mean, I think that this is, uh, it kind of circles back around to the question of um, of what we're doing with family history and how family history relates to, poli to political economy. But um, I think what's exciting about about family history and with the kind of benefit that Ottomanists now have of the last... 20, 30 years of thinking about um, thinking about gender, thinking about um, social dynamics, and thinking about how uh, how the courtroom is a space for um, you know to what degree is it a space for women to kind of um, exert property as as agents and economic actors or social actors. Um, certainly, in this case, one gets the impression that. Um, Aisha Hatun, for instance, is a really dynamic and and powerful individual in her own right. Uh, likewise, the the wife of uh, Mehmed Aga's um, grandson, once that family becomes kind of more established in uh, in Tripoli, fifty years later, uh, these women, you know, bring a great deal of their own. I mean, they they are property owners in their own right. This is a, a historians ottoman historians often sort of like to hold up that fact against like europeanists who you know women in many european areas couldn't own property until you know the 1970s uh -huh. or something i mean something outrageous but in the context of um of 17th century tripoli one can't escape the number of women inheriting property from uh from males with oscary titles for instance and i think that this is where we really begin to kind of, it becomes impossible to maintain any sort of distinct categories uh, within Ottoman society between Askari and Riaya. And I think that what's so important about this and what's so important about um, looking at a property regime that allows women to inherit, and in fact demands that women inherit uh, shares in in, in males' um property is that it completely blurs the lines between the kind of the reins of politics and the realm of of the family so these kind of private public um you know center periphery binaries just become very very fuzzy when people's wives and daughters and the daughters are going to go off and get married and join other families i mean it all becomes very uh entangled and and the courtroom is really at the center of all of this i mean this is how we how we come to know about all of it.
And so one of one of the other themes that we have in family history, and this is especially important for the Middle East, because a lot of what we know about family history was based on, say, the English context or studying the French context, and, and we find that families in, all over the Ottoman Empire are actually different, that families in Damascus are different than families in Istanbul, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, of course, the definition of family is not here the nuclear family, although we have brothers and sisters and moms and all of this stuff, but actually of, of the quote-unquote household. I think I think that historians of, uh, of family in the Middle East like to use hane or kappa or these kinds of ter- terms. Where do you see this playing out in your study? When we start to untangle family dynamics through... Uh you know, our, our lens into family dynamics in this period and in this place, um, they become clear by looking at, at all these property relations. And when you're dealing with that amount of property, you're also often dealing with human property and with slaves, for instance. Um, and, you know, people have done a lot of work on slavery in the Ottoman context. It's, you know, it's not what we think of when we think about sort of slavery in, in the United States or, or chattel slavery, for instance, but it's household servitude. Um, it's, I mean, there's different, uh, there's different dynamics in that regard as well, male and female slaves. But, uh, one of the major phenomena that come up, uh, not only in the case of Mehmed Agha and his household, but, uh, in many other cases in late 17th century Tripoli are, uh, how integral uh, slaves and even sort of female slaves whom you might think would be uh, sort of disempowered in this context, I mean, they often become sort of the counter or the, the core of um, of a dynasty. I mean, the, how? I mean, within Islamic law, a female slave who gives birth to the child of her master is automatically manumitted. Um, I mean, there was one case in, in 17, I mean, excuse me, 1667, I believe, uh, in Tripoli, where uh, a female slave came to the court, or a former female slave mm-hmm. came to the court. Um, she had a fatwa from the mufti uh, because she was contesting uh, the efforts of the biological heirs of a deceased janissary to include this female slave in the the deceased Janissary's estate. So they uh-huh. wanted to include her as part of his property and, and um, you know, benefit from her in that, in that regard. And she has a fatwa from the Mufti saying um, that, you know, she had become pregnant by her master, then she had miscarried uh, something like six months before his death. Uh, but that was enough to establish her as the mother of his child and therefore um, to gain her freedom. So she was... Um, she became freed. She was not included as part of his part of his property, part of his estate. Well, Zoe, you told us at the beginning of the podcast we were going to be talking about some esoteric mulberry trees in 17th century Tripoli or whatever, and not just mulberry trees in general, but the mulberry trees of one specific family. But in the process of talking about these trees, we've broken apart a lot of maybe misconceptions or assumptions we have about uh, how politics in the Ottoman Empire worked, particularly in the provinces, also uh, shed some light on some of the more interesting gender dynamics taking place that, you know, you don't get, obviously, from an imperial history, but are very much uh, accessible through the court records. And even these issues of class with, with slavery and, and really the whole gamut of social history, I mean, these these little case studies just kind of ruin everything for people who want to tell a big story of history. Don't you think so? 
No, I do think so. And I think it's uh, one of the reasons that uh, Ottomanists are really, really well poised uh, within sort of Middle East studies to to break apart a lot of the a lot of the stereotypes and misconceptions that, you know, have have been challenged continuously, I think, over the past couple of generations, but but that still have some way to go in um, breaking down completely. And and the family's the place where we can do this. We have this paradox. The family is continuity, but I mean, the family is so dynamic in its structure and, and its place that you know, it's slippery. You can't you can't put a, a family, as you said, into the Oscar category or Raya category. They're they're straddling different categories, and their fa- and and their situation is changing. One member of the family is in one class, one's in another. So, I really appreciate you talking to us a little bit about political economy and using the family as a window onto it. I think it was successful and I think it's inspirational for other people who do want to go out there and study the issue of political economy and do want to go out there and read those court records, which are available. They are very much available. They're waiting for you. Yes, exactly. For those who want to find out more about this topic, Zoe has provided us with a short bibliography on our website where you can find out about all the books she mentioned today as well as find some other background reading uh, to pursue this topic further. That's also where you can leave your comments and questions and and maybe even come visit us on Facebook uh, and check out the activity in our Facebook group. Uh, That's all for this episode of the Adam History Podcast. Thank you for listening. Until next time, take care.